Hi, this is Laura. And this is Luli. And you are listening to Astela Around the World. We will be zooming out of Brazil to explore the worlds of extraordinary global tech thought leaders in a deep dive into their stories, their inspirations, views on tech investing, and perspectives on the different aspects and trends happening in the local and global tech ecosystems. Astela is an early-stage Brazilian-based VC. Stay tuned and welcome to Astela Around the World. everybody, we are here on another edition of uh, Astella Around the World. Today we have uh, Esteban Reis with us. Esteban is also a dear friend uh, from Kaufman. He has spent uh, 21 years building startups and 10 years investing. He has an incredible trajectory as a co-founder of uh, three B2B companies that were successfully sold. He also incubated eight companies with uh, personal capital and uh, that resulted in uh, almost uh, seven times uh, multiple over invested capital. He also ran a business unit for a public company, Lender uh, Processing Services, after uh, one of those uh, exits. And more recently, he raised and invested $30 million on B2B seed fund, which is also great, uh, performing at top decile. And uh, 80% of the rounds uh, led received follow-on capitals from top VCs. So he also invested personally in 13 emerging VC funds and has uh, specific views on ecosystems, has uh, breakouts. And I had the pleasure of uh, meeting and engaging with uh, Esteban during Kaufman Fellows. Esteban, as I mentioned to you, it is impressive how your story is awesome. And uh, I couldn't see how it fits on your lifetime. I mean, how old are you? I mean, <laughs> you don't need to answer, but I was like, man. <laughs> and I will, just as a spoiler, he is 30 plus. So, I mean, it's amazing how all of this happens uh, in your life and how intense it was. I would uh, love to start um from your background, if you could tell about uh, your infancy and upbringing, what uh, made you move to the U.S., how you started to think about your career and, and life as an adult and so forth. Well, first of all, Laura, I'm super excited to be here. I've been really wanting to be part of the podcast for a long time, so I'm really happy that we made it work. And uh, that is a very generous intro, so thank you for that. I'll try to live up to that standard throughout the episode. Yeah, I grew up in Colombia and uh, basically in Cartagena, which maybe some of your listeners have visited. It's a beautiful town on the uh, Caribbean in Colombia. And uh, growing up, I was always intrigued by entrepreneurship and less so in the academic way. And it was more in the from the perspective of just building stuff and finding ways to commercialize whatever the stuff was. And I think this was embedded in my thinking very early on. When I was about six years old, I heard a story that pretty much changed the way I thought about everything in my life. So this was the story of a coal miner in the 1940s in Colombia, who one day said, I want to find a better pathway and he essentially hacked his way into the U.S. on a cargo plane, learned English, landed a job uh, for a company, a sales job, and essentially became an executive at that company over the years. He was living in New York City. 
grew a family and then moved back to Colombia several years later to start his first company. This was my grandfather. So ever since I heard that story, I knew that someday I wanted to start a company. When I moved to the U.S. in the late 90s, I was in my junior year of college, and I remember this story, and that was the calling to go start my first business, Verification Bureau. That's amazing. That's impressive. And I want also to touch on on how your grandparents' story shaped your history and your personality on the perspective also of how you're raising your kids, because from what we spoke, that your kids are also very interested on trading and how to be um, independent and uh, people. And, and they are always looking for opportunities to grow and to discuss uh, with you in terms of uh, how the economic is built and, and this kind of thing. So I was, uh, when you were describing your infancy, I was curious, uh, it came into my mind the question, is that part of the DNA or it is part of the education that the family has and it goes uh, generation from generation passing to kids because it, it's amazing, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting question. I mean, what I would tell you is growing up, I was always encouraged by my family to be curious and to just go down rabbit holes of different kinds. Like, for example, my grandfather from my mother's side, he was a ham radio operator. So like he would, you know, like talk to people over the world through high frequency and low frequency radios and basically make contact. That led me to be curious about these things. I would build antennas on my own, like on the rooftop of a 15-story building as a 12-year-old. And my parents, instead of saying, oh, that's too dangerous, like you can't be on the rooftop, like they would actually buy me the raw materials for me to build these antennas and then stay up until midnight trying to contact people across the world via radio. So that stuck with me as a mental model for, you know, helping my kids find their own curiosity. And it's all these stories that I think encourage me to be very open-minded with the things that they're curious about and give them the resources for them to just almost see it like play, you know, like go play around. If you're interested in learning more about crypto, even though you're 10 years old, like it doesn't matter. Just hop into the internet, start reading. If you see something that you're interesting that you want to try out, like you want to buy an NFT, let's go buy an NFT together and see what that experience is like. If you want to do a trade on some DeFi platform, then let's go do it. And I think what that does is first, it allows us to establish a stronger connection because we're learning together. And I really enjoy learning. Second, it allows them to like feel that there's very little downside in being curious and doing things that maybe are not what's expected of them at school or within their uh, peers, right? Their friends. And then third, I think it also gives them like mental model to explore the world and to see things from a different perspective with encouragement from pa Paola and I, my wife and I as their parents. Interesting. Esteban, so just going back to your story, what were the biggest takeaways from seeing your parents build a new life in the U.S.? From what I understood, there was your grandfather's portion of the story. You went back to Colombia and then you moved with your parents in the U.S. So what's some of the background there? and What were some of the takeaways? Yeah, I moved to the U.S. before my parents. So this was 1997. I had just graduated from high school and the plan was that I would come here to go to college. Because my grandfather and uh, my dad had lived here 
we had the benefit of not having any sort of immigration hurdles. You know, they were both U.S. citizens. So that was a great benefit for us. And I feel very lucky that that was the case. But it was really a time in Colombia where it was a very complicated country from a security and just political standpoint. Many other families, we decided to move out and I guess find a new beginning. So the biggest takeaways for me moving from Colombia given those consequences where that I had to learn how to adapt very quickly because it was a totally new culture. It was kind of living on my own. It was really just figuring out my own pathway. And during my second year, as I mentioned, was when it really hit home for me. And I realized that the best way for me to find my own pathway was starting a company, which led me to, to start the first business. Then my family moved here And uh, it was good in the sense that we could spend more time together and so on. But I always grew very independent. Like for me, sort of being in the U.S. was a way of expressing that independence and starting my first company. And Stephen, very early, you co-founded a company called uh, Verification Bureau, which is another interesting story uh, where you and the team developed the first digital verification and fraud prevention platform that was uh, integrated with the IRS and SSA. And uh, this company was sold, uh, just that uh, listeners can understand, uh, this company was sold to the lender processing uh, services after eight years. But the technology and data continued to be used uh, by 400 plus uh, financial institutions. Moving now to your, starting to your professional career, how did you end up uh, uh, knowing your co-founders and uh, having the idea uh, to create the verification before? And uh, and what was uh, your roles uh, from the beginning until the company was sold? When I sort of decided that I wanted to start a company, the first thing I did was learn how to code. And the reason was because I realized that technology was something that I really enjoyed and where I saw a tremendous opportunity. After playing around with some friends and some projects, uh, building software, I started to look for problems that I was excited about. And as a student, I was working part-time at a bank. I realized that there was a big bottleneck in how banks verified information. For example, your social security number, your identity, your income, your assets, when you go and apply for a loan. And uh, I started asking why many times and realized that it was all manual. That was something that, for whatever reason, I was excited about solving, you know, automating that manual process, simplifying it so that banks could better identify fraud and uh, false information ahead of issuing a loan. So my two co-founders are uh, both Colombian. One, actually, I knew back from Cartagena, we went to the same high school. And then the other I met while in college. Even though we had different backgrounds, you know, they were also intrinsically motivated to start a company. After spending time together, like talking through what that would look like, I shared this idea and we uh, like within 48 hours started to work together, decided to launch the company. Yeah, I guess the rest is history in that regard. We got to build that company on a bootstrap to about 400 customers across the U.S., mostly uh, financial institutions. Five of the top 10 uh, mortgage lenders used our products. Then in 09, when it was pretty obvious that 
verifying information and fraud prevention was a big deal. You know, the financial crisis was pretty much a byproduct of weak practices around these areas. We luckily had built a pretty strong team and what the market defined as a category leading product. So we uh, got a number of unsolicited offers to sell the business and we ended up selling it to uh, a division of lender processing services, which was originally part of Fidelity of FNF. For those in your audience that don't know who these companies are, they are some of the largest technology and services providers for the financial services and uh, mortgage space in the U.S. Esteban, did you sign a retention period with LPS for the time period? And like, how was that? And how was it working for a listed company? For how long did you stay? Yeah. So as part of the transaction, we did have an earnout, although it was mostly a cash transaction. They retained us, all the three founders. I joined uh, LPS as a lead for their fraud solutions division. It was really interesting because just kind of I hadn't had a corporate job before starting my company, and it was a very different dynamic in the sense that it was very interesting in terms of working with other groups within the organization and learning how to operate as part of a larger company. We also got to launch new products within the fraud solutions division. We supported some acquisitions and divestitures, so it was a great learning experience. But very quickly, I realized that my heart lied in building companies and sort of being more, being closer to the fire, which that corporate world wasn't really providing for me. So after the earnout, I decided to leave all in good terms. And, you know, that led me to, I guess, the preface to my career as an investor. After leaving LPS, I started to look for ideas for companies and I was hanging out with a bunch of founders. And I realized that I was more excited about their ideas than my own. I started to like explore how I could work with those founders, just taking some of the cash from the exit. What I ended up doing was helping launch some of these companies. We ended up launching eight companies. Uh, Four of them had some form of product market fit and we exited two of them successfully. One of them, we got our money back. And that was really instructive in the sense of me realizing that I really enjoyed this idea of combining financial with productive capital in a way that I could invest and be involved early on in the journey of companies. So that was sort of like the first step into seeing myself as an investor, which led to launching the the first venture capital firm that I was associated with. That's very interesting. That's amazing. I didn't uh, realize it was uh, that soon that you started uh, investing. But then when you left uh, LPS, you continued to look for other opportunities. And as far as I understand, you co-founded other two tech companies that were also successfully exited, plus Endeavor schools that you were a founding investor and board members. So when you look at hindsight on all you've uh, built and experienced and all the challenges you faced, can you identify like a special meaning to all you did or a common purpose that you were searching in all of those uh, business and activities since that time? For me, starting companies and investing in companies has been a mechanism for exploring the world, learning, connecting with other people, and whenever possible, empowering the people that I connect with in any way that I can. That, I think, has been the common thread across everything that I've been involved with as a founder, as an investor, 
when I think about what I'm doing today, which is, I guess, the compilation of the last 20 plus years of being a founder investor with Zenda Capital, I guess I would summarize it by saying that we believe that in order to be successful as an early stage investor, thinking more as a business owner rather than an investor is a prerequisite. And when you think as a business owner, you really have the motivation to help build things that can have a significant impact to the world, which, you know, as a result, maybe leads to a great financial outcome. That is our North Star agenda and the way that we think about investing, right? So when we're working with people, are these people that we would enjoy working with or for for a very long time? Are we aligned on sort of like the core values and the premises for building a business or participating in the way that they're building their own business? Three, is it sort of scratching that itch of exploring the world and learning about things that we're chronically curious about? So, Esteban, when was it that you decided to move to the VC side of the table? You clearly had a special knowledge and you had all the experience to aggregate in your investment opportunities. And it's easy to guess that this is what attracted you to founders at first and continues attracting you to founders, right? How was that decision made and what drove you to create, to start off the bat with your own firm versus joining an established house at that point? I don't think there was a point in time where I made like a premeditated decision to become an investor. It was all very organic. After selling the company, you know, Verification Bureau to LPS and incubating the eight companies, you know, I realized that as an investor, I could play a role in companies that would go beyond the scope of the businesses that I could start myself as a founder. So essentially be part of companies that were exciting to me, but not necessarily ones that I had the background or experience to start. That all became, that all fell into place pretty quickly and uh, gave me sort of like a foundation to play the role of an investor versus wanting to be a founder. As far as like why start my own firm versus joining an existing firm. When I thought about how to formalize what I was doing, incubation of companies, formalize it a little bit more, I looked around to see which firms were doing this and also where, you know, I could join without moving Miami. Uh, I was very well rooted here and I just didn't want to want to move, being very honest. And there weren't a lot of VC firms locally, right? There were firms in New York, there were firms in the Bay. But I think at the core, I'm just an entrepreneur. And I thought that I would have an opportunity to start a firm and build a firm that subscribed to my own values and the things that I believed. And if I was going to join a firm, it was more to learn to then come back and start my own firm. So luckily, I had the opportunity to learn at least the basics by co-founding a firm called Las Olas VC. And at the time, the focus was investing in the Southeast US. And this was a great opportunity when we launched that first fund. Over time, I started to realize that the scope of opportunity was broader and that I didn't want to be limited by a geographic constraint. You know, I was seeing opportunities in LATAM. I was seeing opportunities in other markets outside of the Southeast. So that, along with desire to just start a firm that I could have more flexibility in the way I invested stage-wise and just certain sectors that I was attracted to, was the motivation for starting Zenda instead of joining another firm or continuing at Las Olas. 
Now I understood how was the transition between Las Olas and Zenda. And how did you meet uh, your partners and uh, build the relationships for the GP um, idea on uh, Zenda? At Zenda, I'm a sole GP. I have two venture partners who I've known for a very long time, Chayton Chaudhry and Evan Kumak. They were early Twilio employees. So I've known Chayton because for over 10 years, we incubated one of the companies together, a company called NovoScale which we sold last year to uh, Sunstone Partners. And uh, Evan, he worked very closely with Chayton during their Twilio days. And given my relationship with Chayton, I met Evan and we collaborated on a number of areas. He was always somebody that I would go to and get feedback on product. You know, his background is primarily product. But yeah, we just had this like working relationship throughout the years. So when I thought about launching Zenda, I reached out to them. I, you know, just for feedback, and they responded saying that they wanted to play a role. Uh, so they're officially venture partners. Their role is much more than a venture partner. So they spend a lot of time giving me feedback on specific opportunities and also introducing me to folks that can help portfolio companies. Then beyond that, I decided that I wanted to build a team. So I've hired two people, somebody that's running my back office, and then somebody that's working with me on the investment side. The idea is unlike many solo VCs or solo GPs, we have the benefit of being able to decide quickly and be very nimble. Also the benefit of getting feedback from thought partners that I've known for a very long time and have areas of expertise and product and go to market, as well as a team that I work with on a day-to-day basis to build out the firm. I mean, in Zenda's website, you mentioned that uh, you believe uh, entrepreneurship is one of the greatest expression of purpose by mankind. What do you look for in an opportunity and in teams when you start engaging with a new startups? And when you engage and you start advising founders on uh, next rounds and follow-ons, kind of a recommendation or red flag you ask them to look for and to pay attention? Yeah. So as far as what we look for in uh, founders when we're looking to invest, we apply a lot of the same frameworks that we applied as entrepreneurs and operators. So we're really looking for people that have a deep understanding the problem that they're trying to solve and are biased towards action. You know, oftentimes we want to see like how these founders are interacting with customers, how they're hiring people. But at the end of the day, what we are scouting for, what is the unique advantage in building a specific company? And that could come in different shapes and forms, depending on the type of business that they're looking to build. And do they have a big enough ambition building that company or building that company to its biggest and best expression, but at the same time, taking a very pragmatic approach in doing so, right? And having clarity of thought and what are the steps that they're going to take and how are they going to adapt? Because, you know, things never work out exactly as you plan them. So it's a little bit of a tension, right, between highly aspirational, but also hyper-rational. I mean, that's oversimplified. I could go into a lot more detail, but at a high level, that's what gets us excited. Beyond that, I mean, like many firms, many VCs, you know, like we're looking for large markets, we're looking for differentiated products, we're looking for unique opportunities. But at the end of the day, I think what we over-index on is why would this company be a company of consequence? Why does this company need to exist? And is this team the optimal team to go and build it? Your question was specific to fundraising. 
Yeah, pretty much first, but I was about to do like a follow-on uh, question. I mean, when you face uh, the divergency of um, big vision versus uh, focus execution, what are the biggest uh, issues that you normally face with our founders and you, you try to recommend and to avoid? This was uh, also a follow-on question on how you advise and how you engage with founders. I think it, it's very context-dependent. Is very specific to the type of business that the founders are trying to build. But some things are typical, right? Like getting go-to-market right, getting distribution right is never easy. And sometimes, and I've been uh, guilty of this, trying to push hard on customers to get a sense for how much they're willing to pay, how quickly, and so on. You know, like how much of an urgency is the problem that the product is solving can be a death trap. Because at the end of the day, at least at, at the early stage, right, when you go out and raise capital, you're trying to prove or disprove a hypothesis that needs to result in some sort of value to the customer. And the best way to measure that value is how much are they paying you? I would say that's a pretty common issue. And I, I don't like the word advice, but I like to help founders stay self-aware so that they're not falling into that trap. The other thing is setting a culture early on. And there's a lot of sort of buzz around, you know, what that actually means. The way I like to think about that is culture is really how you make decisions. And what are the things that are non-negotiable when you're making those decisions? So setting that early on and having clarity amongst the founders or the early team is critical. And less about like vision and mission statements. It's more like, okay, if we're faced with hiring somebody that we believe can be helpful in the short term, but it's more like a hired gun mercenary type hire versus somebody that is really a believer and supporter of what we're trying to build as an organization, as a company, is those kind of decisions. There's no right or wrong answer. It's more like gray. And then the last thing I would call out is capital efficiency, even at the early stage. And how do you balance allocating capital properly in order to create enough traction or momentum to then be in a position to raise additional capital, you know, optimal terms, or at least at terms that are favorable to the company. That's a very sort of fine art in the sense that in the past, I don't know, five, 10 years, we've been in a market where it's been very founder friendly and not necessarily as penalizing at the early stage in particular, if you have a strong team or a team that you know has a strong background, there's more uh, flexibility in terms of investors coming in at higher prices, even though the traction is not fully there. But I think that discipline is probably going to come to market and for founders to be prepared and just be very thoughtful about how they're going to produce certain output that the market is going to recognizes a strong signal beyond whatever story they can tell and however they can position their vision, there needs to be some uh, enough validation that supports the vision. Whereas maybe in the past, that wasn't the case so much. I think that's going to change and it's going to become something important for founders to think about. Esteban, so we'd also love to hear what's your view and your take and the advice you give to founders with you know, the current market scenario with very markets, very liquid and very competitive. How do you advise your companies when it comes to preemptive rounds or mega rounds? Should they take it? Should they leave it? When and where? <laughs> What's your advice on that? Yeah, I don't know that it is a black and white question, to be honest. Again, I think it's very context dependent on 
the specific company, the situation that they're in and so on. But generally, I would say that raising capital is is not winning, right? Like raising capital is creating certain expectation with the market that you're going to accomplish certain objectives in order to justify uh, whatever the market has priced you at, you know, as a company. The fact that you can raise a very large round at a very high valuation doesn't always mean that you should do it, right? And it's a question of can you deploy that capital effectively in order to clear whatever hurdle the market has, expects based on the valuation that you're getting paid as a founder? And do you have clarity on how you're going to do that? Or are you raising cash because you want to have optionality down the line? And, you know, because I don't know, you're worried about the macro environment or you want to be able to represent just a stronger balance sheet to customers or for hiring and so on. But I think having clarity on why you're going to raise that capital is probably the most important thing. And then second, how you're going to allocate it in order to not be in a position where you're putting yourself in just like a position of weakness if you don't deliver results to perfection. So like maybe one way to simplify what I just said is if as a founder, you seek to price your company to perfection, then you're probably going to have to execute to perfection. And that is usually very hard. Totally. Oh my God. And Stephen, moving to one aspect that you mentioned that you insisted on staying in Miami because of uh, personal issues and now everything makes sense. So um, how do you see the, the evolution of a uh, Miami as a tech and innovation ecosystem. And if you think there is a correlation of what's going on there with uh, Latin America in general and your views on how an ecosystem starts or is born and and what are the main uh, aspects or the main uh, important pillars in your view for the upsurge of an ecosystem in in cities or regions uh, throughout the world? Yeah, I I can share my perspective about Miami as an observer and I guess throughout the years, I've had different roles. You know, I've been an entrepreneur and then in the last, you know, six years, I've been an investor. So I don't know that I'm qualified, honestly, to like speak about other ecosystems. But as far as Miami, I would say that the change has been significant. There's been a tectonic shift in just the overall ecosystem. And that is a function of three things, in my view. Number one, I think that it's a very friendly city in many respects, you know, like culturally it's very uh, open. You can come here and have whatever beliefs and you're still going to find a group of people or a community that you can connect with. doesn't matter if you're Republican, (laughs) liberal, a capitalist, gay, black, Latino, like it's pretty much a, a very diverse culture. So I think that makes it a very welcoming place. Then The other aspect is from a fiscal perspective is very attractive. You know, it's one of few states in the U.S. where there's no state tax. And so for cities or states like, say, New York and San Francisco, people that have been living there and paying very high taxes, Miami becomes a very appealing option. Weather, you know, it's like great. I would say from a structural perspective, Miami has all those advantages. So that's number one. And I think that created a backdrop, right? Number two, how I've seen it evolve is that, and this is not just in Miami, it's like in general, knowledge of how to build companies has democratized as well as the uh, infrastructure to do it. And this is kind of already discussed a lot, so I won't go into a lot of detail, but like 
a lot of the building blocks, you know, software building blocks for building, you know, software application are pretty commoditized. So the cost for information, the cost for getting market feedback is much lower. And the playbooks to like at least get started are out there for people to uh, to leverage. And then the last thing is, I think, you know, COVID was a blessing in disguise for uh, the local ecosystem. And Major Suarez kind of saw that and he took advantage of it. Uh, he saw that opportunity. He took advantage of it in a good way and positioned Miami as a city that represented everything that I said before. Very welcoming, you know, like this meme how can I help, right? I think that's very much descriptive of the local Miami culture. So I think about like what's next and also what's been happening and what's next. So what I'm most excited about is lots of people are moving here that are under the radar. So like engineers, product people from big tech, as well as from startups, CEOs and founders of companies from everywhere, the Bay, New York, other places, as well as LATAM. And I think that is creating a fabric that was missing in Miami, because one of the things that we didn't have was like a Stanford, right, or an, or an MIT. There wasn't a center of gravity around tech. This is happening organically, and it's almost like being imported <laughs> into the city. And this is mainly led by people that moved during the pandemics to work remotely. Is that what you mean, that the pandemics helped a lot Miami and on this sense as well? Is, and then it creates like a, a local um, market uh, for labor and for special dedicated uh, people for tech. Is that what you mean exactly? Exactly. People moving here, working remotely and participating in the local ecosystem, even though they're working remotely for companies around the world or in other places. So I think what all of this does is create a pretty strong foundation for companies to emerge out of Miami. We've already started to see some examples. There are communities that are forming, you know, like crypto has been pretty active in Miami as a community. And um, I think there's a lot more to come, especially like around LATAM. Miami has been promoted as like the gateway for Latin America for a long time. And I don't think that's happened, but I actually believe that now the timing is right for that narrative to come together. So, Esteban, you're a very important voice for awareness of the lack of liquidity for emerging managers and for micro VCs. How do you see the ecosystem evolving and addressing these problems? And what are the foreseeable alternatives you see? Yeah, so I wrote about this a while back, and I wouldn't categorize myself as an expert by any means in this topic. It was mostly out of curiosity that I spent some time talking to peers and emerging managers. You know, what I found was that as a result of venture capital being highly liquid, especially managers that are investing early stage have this very long timeline to see liquidity. There's a mismatch between that liquidity cycle and an emerging manager building their business, right? Because Typically, an emerging manager raises or a VC raises a fund, deploys it within a three-year timeline, and then goes back to market to raise the next fund. But within a three-year timeline, they haven't really seen liquidity back. If they are starting a firm, usually their first fund is going to be rather small. So there's not a lot of fees that they get to charge in order to build their firms and let alone support themselves. So unless 
you're financially independent or unless you have other sources of financing, that could be a really hard journey because it just takes time. So my observation was that maybe there could be an opportunity to identify emerging managers that had deployed capital across maybe a couple of funds and their funds had enough maturity so that they could get liquidity. It could be in the form of debt or it could be in the form of uh, structured financing in order to invest back in building their firms. So this was a while back that I wrote about it. I think that the market has started to respond to that need. You know, like there are some banks that will offer GP loans. As far as GP commits, I think this is now pretty standard. So like there's ways to offset a GP commit with management fees, which is becoming pretty popular, pretty standard in LPAs these days. It's exciting to see that I think it was like two two years, maybe three years ago that I wrote about it. There's been an evolution from the market in that regard. And it seems like there continues to be more interest from capital providers to find ways of solving the liquidity needs of emerging managers. So I'm pretty encouraged about it, actually. And this comes to fund of funds that can write smaller checks on and doesn't have to have larger funds in order to accommodate their $50 million <laughs> minimum check size and all the alternatives that you mentioned, right? Yep. Yeah. That's interesting. We hope our ecosystem will continue to be creative on that because uh, it's uh, amazingly important um, considering the character of uh, innovation that uh, our job has as well to have emerging managers coming to the scene with uh, different perspectives and searching for different uh, business models and this kind of thing. So yeah, have to keep our fingers crossed. Very interesting. Yeah, so Esteban, unfortunately we're coming to the end. I think it's been, we're almost an hour here talking and even realized. So we'll come to the end of our show and uh, we like to get philosophical by the end. We have a few questions that we would love to hear your point of view. And the first one is, how optimistic are you with the future of life and humanity? So I'm optimistic about humanity finding a way to be resilient and, you know, addressing like major challenges that we're experiencing as a species and overcoming whatever sort of threats we face, you know, like COVID-19 is one example, how quickly we were able to reorganize ourselves And that doesn't come with pain points and challenges. And there's always, in hindsight, better ways that things could have been solved. But I think for the most part, at some point, it felt like there wasn't clarity on how we were going to overcome a pandemic. And I think very quickly, we got to that clarity and we found a vaccine and so on. And we were able to bend a lot of rules that historically had prevented innovation to happen in things like biotech to find a solution. So from that perspective, I think... I'm very optimistic. I do worry about how maybe newer generations are becoming more disconnected from, you know, being present. Things like devices and the internet, as powerful as it is and as valuable as it is. And it's kind of funny because that's what I invest in. And, uh, you know, that's where I spend most of my time. But at the same time, I believe that there is an opportunity to better educate newer generations of how to best use things like the internet to their benefit. 
And when you think about all the discussions and the crisis generated by um, lack of communication or distorted communication in terms of fake news that we've uh, seen and how the the Russian population has been uh, deprived from information from other perspectives and how this can be replicated in, in social media. How do you foresee um, us as uh, humankind uh, addressing this issue that is so uh, important for development of societies in general, democracy? And I can't uh, not ask you about uh, what you think about Elon Musk's uh, movement on acquiring Twitter. So how do you see this uh, entire situation? <laughs> yeah, I think there's uh, a few elements to that. One is, I mean, I would argue that fake news have always existed. Is The difference now is that we've become lazy and we've become addicted to being fed content. And because the world is now hyper-connected, uh, whatever happens you know, in Beijing or whatever happens in Berlin or whatever, we find out within the hour. And we become accustomed to consuming that content with uh, very little judgment. And of course, I'm generalizing. But I think it's a combination of things. One is the convenience of how that content is provided to us. And then second is, are we engaging in first and second level thinking and critical of what is the veracity of the content? So I think in order to solve number one, having uh, content models that cut through the heart of what we've seen as social media platforms of the last 20 years is important. And Maybe Web3 is a way of addressing that, right? Yeah. Decentralizing how that content is produced and distributed. And then the second part, I think it's more education and, and awareness of questioning the information that we're being provided and not just taking it as the truth, regardless of who is on the other side and really trying to understand what are the motives and the incentives for distributing certain information. I don't know that I can opine on Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, confusing. I'm looking for uh, people's view because uh, if uh, we follow on the threads on uh, on Twitter per se, it's even more confusing how to how to interpret uh, their his views and and uh, his willingness to address uh, the main critics that he makes for the platform and, and social media. So yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Yeah, you can look at it two ways. One, Elon Musk has a track record of really trying to solve mission critical problems for humanity. And if, you know, maybe he's seeing uh, freedom of speech and censorship as one of those, his way of solving that is by acquiring Twitter and rewiring it so it goes back to its origins of enabling. So acquiring it in order to bring it back to its origins. The other way to think about it very simply is that Twitter is a very powerful megaphone. Who wouldn't want to own Twitter from that perspective? It's a big question. We'll see. <laughs> Esteban, so we're coming to the end of an episode and we'd love to finish up. Just if you could quickly share with us something you're currently excited about and something that is currently scaring you. I'm excited about Latin America as a region. I think the uh, last 10 years in terms of like technology and startups represent the foundation for global companies emerging out of the region. And my reasoning behind that is pretty simple is one, the tech stack is the same no matter where you are. So conceivably, you can build a great product in uh, Sao Paulo or Bogota, Colombia, or the Bay Area. Two, distribution of these products is becoming more and more efficient. 
and uh, oriented towards, say, things like product-led growth or digital marketing and so on. So if you build a winning product, you can get it into the hands of users. And most users are not going to question where the product is built or where the team is from. And then third, I think a lot of the uh, influx of capital that has happened has come tied with knowledge and networks that weren't present in the region before. And I think that that helps it sharpen the quality of the uh, entrepreneurs that are looking to start companies at a LATAM. Yeah, that's something I'm excited about. I mean, there's already some examples of this, but I think there's going to be more. Then something I'm scared about. Yeah, just the, the level of interconnectedness that we have today in the world, which is part of what has helped the world advance, is also a very strong vulnerability. So, yeah, I mean, like one example is all the conflict in uh, Ukraine, but I think that's just one expression of it, right? Like there's many other examples. COVID-19 is another example, right? Like an outbreak that maybe many years ago would have not spread out so quickly. I guess now we kind of see it within hours and days all over the world. So I, I worry about some of the unknown things that could emerge as threats and change the way we live. But again, going back to something I said earlier, I'm generally optimistic and I believe that mankind is going to find a way to overcome these challenges and conquer. But I just worry about how that is going to change the way newer generations like our kids live and the experiences that they're going to have to overcome. So I spent time giving them resilience or ways for them to be resilient and understand how to how to cope and navigate all these issues. Totally. Yeah. I think about this all the time as well and, and how to always reinforce the joyness of uh, being together in person and not uh, exchanging ideas in social medias and how the interconnection in person is important for the understanding and create uh, empathetic relationships with each other. So I totally agree. Yeah. It is a challenge. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Stephen, for being here with us and uh, being part of also of, of our journey. Um, for us, it's uh, an honor and a pleasure to have you here and have uh, all the revelations of your story and the details on that. It's impressive how much you've built uh, throughout the years and uh, feel very, very happy to follow your journey. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And uh, that's mutual. This was a lot of fun. I'm glad we could do it. And uh, yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you, Seven.